welcome to New Books in Journalism, where we talk about the latest works in journalism, media, and communication with the people who wrote them. I'm Dave Schwartz from the University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communication. Our guest for this episode is Thomas Patterson, Bradley Professor of Government and the Press at Harvard University. His latest book is Informing the News, the Need for Knowledge-Based Journalism. The book, produced with the backing of the Carnegie Corporation and the Knight Foundation, tackles head-on the issues facing journalism today and sets a course for journalism's future. Thanks for joining us. No, thank you. Uh, before we get uh, too much in, into the specific content of the book, how did this? Uh, how did it come about? How did the topic sort of stew with you? And, and then just sort of take us through the beginning of the process of the writing of this book. Well, I've been studying the media for a long time, uh, coming up on 40 years now. And uh, for the most part, you know, I've been interested in the media's role politically, uh, looking at uh, uh, the role that the media play in campaigns, uh, how election coverage affects not only the uh, the voters but the candidates. Um, and uh, and we've been looking kind of here at the Shorenstein Center, uh, other issues of journalism. Uh, this is the most uh, kind of journalist-centered uh, piece I've ever done. Uh, and what gave it the impetus, uh, we've been working with the Carnegie and Knight Foundations uh, over the last decade uh, to try to think about uh, changes in journalism and particularly in journalism education. Uh, there was a sense on the part of the two foundations that uh, uh, in some ways the complexity of the world had moved back, uh, past the, the model of journalism that was in play. And uh, so we were looking at how do you how do you improve journalism uh, in an age when there's a lot of complexity around public affairs, uh, you know, when there's instant communication, uh, and where does journalism kind of fit uh, with all of the new players uh, in the media system? Uh, so it was the period of the Carnegie Knight uh, Foundation inter- Enterprise where we sort of settled in on this idea of knowledge-based journalism, uh, which is an attempt to kind of deepen uh, journalists' understanding of the subject areas they're reporting on uh, with the idea if they have a deeper understanding of those issues, uh, they can report better uh, and they can correct a lot of the inaccuracies and to some degree the irrelevancies uh, of much of the news coverage. Uh, And it was kind of a combination of those things uh, sort of as we were getting uh, toward the end of that enterprise uh, there was a question that came up in my mind about how do we put some lights under this? Uh, we've learned a lot uh, during these uh, during these years working with uh, journalism programs, uh, but in some ways, you know, that was that was retail. Uh, how do we take this wholesale? Um, and uh, we have two things uh, that were our answer to that. One is a website that we call Journalist Resource. Uh, which is an aggregate some of the best research on topics in the news, makes them available to uh, journalists, journalism educators, journalism student, students. Uh, and then this book, uh, which in some ways is an argument uh, for the underlying concept uh, uh, of the initiative. Early on, you discussed the, uh, the term is the problematic way in which public re- receives news. Uh, is, was that directed more toward uh, based on maybe the lack of understanding of the subject that the journalist is writing about, or is it somewhat also on on the audience in, in that they don't quite know what they should be looking for? 
Well, it, it works on both sides, of course, and uh, there is an interplay between uh, what journalists provide and uh, what audiences expect. Um, and you do mold tastes over time. Um, I've always been struck, and I've spent a good bit of time in um, in uh, London and, and other parts of uh, England. Uh, I've always been struck uh, about uh, the interest in news there, and that it's that it's different than the interest in news in the U.S. Um, uh, there's more interest in content. There seems to be more interest in issues. I mean, there's a tabloid dimension. Don't get me wrong. There's a tabloid dimension to the British press that we have uh, no match for that's uh, on the downside of it. But on the upside, um, there's a more serious approach to journalism. Um, and I think that's reflected also in kind of audience tastes. And I think the BBC um, is one of the reasons why uh, the audience tastes differ somewhat uh, here than there. Uh, so th- there is a piece of this that belongs to the audience. On the other hand, I think most of the responsibility rests with the journalists. Um, they're the gatekeepers. Uh, they're the ones that have the opportunity to to kind of look out on the world and decide uh, on a given day what's newsworthy and what's not, and then what aspects uh, of those events or developments uh, are most deserving of attention, and then how they're going to be framed or talked about. So um, in many ways, I think it's the journalist who has the, as the professional, who has the responsibility to exercise the most judgment. Um, and, uh, and of course, journalists in their creeds uh, say that that's their obligation, that's their duty, uh, that's why they're deserving of First Amendment protections. Um, and, uh, you know, in, and to the degree, I think Walter Lippmann said it best, uh, democracy requires uh, trustworthy and relevant news. Um, and uh, you look to journalists to provide it. Uh, sometimes they do. Uh, too often, in my judgment, they don't. Uh, and to the detriment of what we know and think about politics and public affairs. Lippmann is, is a common string that runs throughout the book. He has, there's a quote of his, you know, before every chapter. What do you think he, he would think if he were around today at the current journalistic climate? Well, I think he would be slightly aghast uh, as to what has happened to journalism. Uh, you know, he was on the in the beginning edge of when journalism was reforming itself in the early 20th century, it was coming out of the heyday of the partisan press uh, and also yellow journalism where pretty much anything went. I mean, the the whole purpose of yellow journalism was to attract an audience and they would do whatever was needed uh, to attract that audience. And uh, he thought that the public needed a better type of news and, and made an argument for it. Uh, and then saw some movement in that direction with objective journalism, uh, the development of journalism uh, schools for training uh, future reporters, uh, you know, some signs that that things were moving in the right direction. Uh, As he wrote about it in subsequent years, uh, he was disappointed that it wasn't moving more quickly than it was. Uh, But, you know, I think, you know, his work in journalism sort of ended a little after the mid mid century period and uh he was a leading voice of journalism and i think the journalism probably in the 50s 60s 70s was by journalism standards pretty good um and one reason for it was that uh it was a monopoly uh in newspapers uh in most cities uh in the united states there was one newspaper uh and these were money machines the uh the most profitable sector uh, in the American economy in the 
second half of the 20th century was the communications area uh, and with news organizations leading uh, much of the way there with running 30, 35, 40 percent profit. So they had a lot of money. Uh, they had the resources uh, to, do, to do good reporting. Um, and then on the television side with the three networks, uh, they had an oligopoly uh, because, you know, it was just hard to get a license. Uh, this is pre-cable. Uh, and I think there was a standard uh, that in that environment that they tried to maintain uh, to some degree were able to maintain. Then cable comes along in the 80s, and suddenly there's competition uh, that news organizations had not faced before. Uh, And I don't think they handled that competition very well. One of the things that happened on television was instead of trying to say – you know, it's a new environment. Uh, it's more competitive. Uh, what we need to do is really solidify our place in that environment, do our news as well as we've done it and even better. Uh, instead of doing that, uh, they lightened the news. Uh, it's been called soft news, infotainment, news light. Uh, you know, there's a lot more celebrity, crime, uh, sensational stories in the news today than there was uh 30 years ago, uh, and that's in part uh, their response to audience competition and their desire to hold on to as big a chunk of the audience as they as they could. Um, so I think that's been uh, something that, that Lipman would look at and say, uh, you know, where's the news in much of that stuff? And that certainly was the response of people like Walter Cronkite, uh, who, who said, uh, you know, that this news is, is getting pretty close to tabloid. Uh, not a, as much of a condemnation as an old uh, television anchor can give to uh, to to what's happening with uh, with journalism, and then some other developments I think were adverse uh, for the quality of news. Um, after Watergate, Vietnam, uh, I, I think the relationship between uh, politicians and journalists uh, really went downhill uh, and became more of an adversarial relationship. Um, which meant that uh, politicians were going to be more on guard, less trusting of journalists, and journalists uh, less trusting of politicians. Uh, and uh, you, you want tension uh, between these two groups. Uh, you want somewhat of an adversarial relationship between politicians and journalists. But if it gets really nasty, uh, then what happens is the politicians get into the spin game, uh, a game of half-truths and the like, and the journalists get into this cynical kind of reporting that we've seen a lot of. Uh, and all of that, in my judgment, works to the detriment of the public. Uh, you know, it, it, it's news that's sour and uh, sometimes angry, uh, often filled with half-truths and spin. And uh, and and the quality, uh, the reliability of the information uh, begins to decline. And I think we've got some real problems now. Uh, it centers mostly, I think, on uh, he said, she said journalism. Uh, we've seen it in the in the uh, in the budget uh, in the government shutdown, uh, where you know one side says this, the other side says this. The journalist just pops all of that in front of the uh, in in front of the listener or the viewer or the reader, uh, and basically kind of throws up his or her arms and says, you, you, you pick, you pick your truth in this. And, uh, you know, journalists, I think have to go beyond that. Uh, we need their help, uh, in sorting out the claims that are being made in the political arena. And, uh, increasingly they've just simply put the claims out there. Now that helps them in a certain sense. Uh, you know, conflict uh, draws a crowd. Uh, John Zoller once said, everybody loves a fight. Uh, 
you know, talking about, um, uh, you know, kind of negative and conflict-based uh, journalism, and that's true. But if it's all conflict uh, and little attempt on the part of the news media to sort through this to help us understand what's really going on, um, then then we begin to to misunderstand much of what's going on. And one of the things that uh, that I find very disturbing, and certainly this is not all something that needs to be put in the laps of journalists, uh, Probably more of it has to do with uh, the talk show hosts and uh, some of the uh, uh, some of the bloggers. But uh, we've got a public that that is increasingly misinformed with a lot of issues. Um, you know, uh, we went into the uh, war in Iraq with uh, more than half of Americans thinking that Iraq and Al Qaeda were one and the same, not literally one and the same, but were uh, allies in. Uh, in the war on terrorism against the United States, whereas, in fact, uh, the Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein were, uh, were uh, you know, avowed enemies uh, for all sorts of reasons, which I don't need to go into here. Uh, climate change. Uh, this is happening. Uh, this is going to have major consequences, not only for the United States, but for the world. Uh, where, where, where's the American public on this? About half of Americans uh, are of the opinion that climate change isn't happening or if it is that it's due to natural causes like sunspots and uh, a tilt of the earth. Uh, you know, how do you grapple uh, with these very difficult issues that we face if uh, half of the public uh, is living in, a, in, in some world that, that isn't touching base with what's actually happening out there? And uh, it's very hard to have public debate when that's the case. Uh, and if you can't have the public debate, the discussion, then it's very hard to take the next step and, and getting policy uh, proposals and solutions to address the problems. We brought up this the idea of the he said, she said journalism, and you see this, I mean, it happens in, in print and it happens on cable, it happens everywhere. It, when, when you put up two sides and create this conflict, one on one side, one person on the other side, it infers, I think, I think what you wrote is it infers that both sides carry an equal weight and it's uh, a for your consideration for the audience. How would, how would the implementation of this idea of knowledge based journalism help, uh, whatever form of journalist, uh, maybe move away from this form of, uh, he said, she said. Yeah. I mean, the Atlantic's, uh, James fellows call, calls this journalism of false equivalencies. Um, and, uh, you know, with the he said, she said, there's there's no difference or discrimination in terms of uh, putting these things out before the public. Uh, sometimes one side's really on, on target in terms of really being truthful and the other side, a half truth or an outright lie. Uh, um, and certainly it's true of uh, both sides. I'm not I'm not suggesting this is simply a one sided uh, part of our political discourse. But, you know, that happens. Uh, and and here the journalist is. Um, and for the journalist, the easy thing to do uh, is to simply put it out there and, and 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 leave it to either the audience's imagination or, it, you know, it can sort through and pick whichever side it wants to. Uh, and there's some good reasons why journalists tend to do it this way. Uh, one is kind of the old objective model of journalism that, uh, you know, objectivity is misleading in that context. It's not objective. It's really some kind of fairness model where you sort of treat each side equally. And if you let each side have its say uh, without kind of diving into uh, the fact of what they're saying, uh, that's somehow fair. Uh, but, you know, 
what it does for the journalist, it protects the journalist. If the journalist jumps into the middle of one of those controversies and says, you know, this side is, is saying something that's much closer to the truth and, and this side uh, is lying in this particular instance. Uh, well, what that does for the journalists often, it gets them cut out. Uh, you know, they, they simply get cut off from, from their sources. Uh, and we saw that with uh, Dana Milbank, uh, who is a reporter with The Washington Post, who was, was the White House correspondent for the post and was covering the Bush White House and a few years into the Bush presidency uh, basically said uh, you know these people are paying, playing pretty fast and loose with the facts well guess what uh, Dana Milbank uh, wasn't flying on the uh, reporter's plane that was following the presidency around when he put his hands up in a White House press conference his hand up in a pre- White House press conference he never got called on you know they have ways to freeze you out so it's a fairly safe kind of journalism on the other hand, there's a. I think journalists collectively uh, need to stand up more uh, and need to start digging into these controversies. Now, one of the barriers uh, for them to do this well is they don't always know themselves uh, where the truth resides, uh, or they're not informed enough about the issue to sort through it uh, in a nuanced way. And that's what you have to do if you thrust yourself into the middle of one of these false equivalencies. You've got to be able to really do it quite precisely. If you start adding noise to the noise, uh, you're rightly subject to criticism. And oftentimes, journalists don't know enough uh, to really sort out the differences. Um, One of my favorite political reporters was Jack Germond, who... uh, died a few months ago. He was reported for the Baltimore Sun, uh, must have covered a dozen presidential campaigns. Uh, and German remarked, boy, I'm good at covering politics. Uh, he said, but when, when they asked me to talk about the policies uh, and the issues of politics, uh, he said, the best I can do is hum a few bars. And what he was saying, in effect, is he really didn't know the issues well enough to get into them. Uh, and that's one of the reasons, I think, why journalists... Uh, need to be uh, schooled more fully, uh, informally or formally, uh, in, the, uh, in the subjects that they're covering. That allows them uh, to dig in more fully and to get into the middle of these contra- controversies and to do it with authority, because you cannot uh, do it without authority. If you, if you know so little that you can't sort these things out, you try to sort them out, and you're going to make a bigger mess of it, and you're going to bring criticism down on your news organization, and rightly so. And I want to come back to the idea of, of journalism education, and we will in, in just a moment. One last question on the idea of balance, perceived balance versus truth, and all these things from from the perception of from the angle of the of the public. It, it feel like they have been trained to, even if they don't know necessarily know what it means, they have been trained to seek out what they believe is balance and truth. Um, how once let, let's say these ideas are adopted. Um, and over you know, over time, they get rolled out of knowledge based journalism, and, and journalists, you know, willing to do the work and call out a side um, that maybe is playing loose with the facts. How do you think, at least initially, that will play with a public that maybe doesn't understand um, what uh, this knowledge based journalism is? And when they hear a side that they believe, you know, what they have, to, you know, they, you know the public has this cognitive dissonance and if they hear something they don't like, they go a different way. So if, so if they hear something, um, that they're, that they perceive as being unfair, 
when in fact it's just a journalist, you know, being factual and being analytical. Um, how do you think that'll play with the audience? Well, as you suggest, there's there's more than a bit of quicksand here. I think for the journalist, and uh, you know what we know from the studies, uh, many from political scientists, some from communication scholars, is that um, when audiences hear these false equivalencies, they have a little tendency to kind of pick up on the side that uh, they're inclined to believe with Republicans kind of siding with the Republican voice and the Democrats siding with the Democratic voice. And in some ways, it's it's kind of, you know, they're, you know, they're authorizing um, reality through, you know, indirectly uh, by their commitment to one party or the other. Uh, we also know that, uh, you know, when journalists rightly uh, criticize a politician, uh, that will be seen often by uh, the people who oppose that politician. They'll say, oh, that's right, that's the truth, that's uh, that's accurate, whereas those that support the politician will think the media are biased. So, you know, I think it's, it, it, I think it's going to be a long process. I think any kind of institutional change takes a while. Um, and, you know, I think the, the public is going to have to get used to a different kind of journalism, just as they've had to get used to, he said, she said, journalism. It's a relatively new form of journalism, in fact, not absolutely, not literally. It's not like you couldn't find it early in the 20th century, for example, but it was actually quite rare. Uh, most of the news reporting up through the uh, 1970s was descriptive in form. It was event-based. Uh, the reporter would go to the scene of event and describe it. Uh, for the audience, whether on television or in the newspaper. Uh, there wasn't an attempt in that kind of reporting to bring another voice, a voice from outside the event, into the event. So you had the he said, but you didn't have the she said in that kind of reporting. Well, news reporting became more synthetic in the 1970s uh, as um, journalists moved away from news reports to news stories, literally telling stories, things with a beginning, middle, and an end. That's a more synthetic, <clears throat> excuse me, kind of journalism. So the synthetic form of journalism is really more about telling stories, um, you know, something with a beginning, middle, and an end. Uh, and it was synthetic in the sense that <clears throat> you could bring in things from the past, you could bring in things that were not happening at the same time or were happening, happening in a different location. Or something could happen, you could get on the phone or send a crew over, uh, get someone else uh, who was opposed to the person who had done something or said something and get them basically to put it down. You know, the he said, she said journalism became really commonplace, uh, you know, in the 80s, the 90s, and is now kind of an everyday feature of American journalism. Um, and now we kind of take it for granted. Uh, you know, we don't even think twice when we see it. Um, and I think what's going to happen if, in fact, a different model of journalism occurs or is, or, or is developed, uh, that it will, that it will, you know, essentially take root very slowly. Um, that was true of objective journalism, uh, which was a, a reaction against yellow journalism and partisan journalism, this idea that uh, journalism would, would play up fact rather than opinion, that it would be two-sided rather than one-sided. Um, that model was proposed in the late 19th century, early 20th century, but it was not for about a 30-, 40-year period before it became the main model of American journalism and therefore the expectation that audiences have or had. 
And I think the same thing now. If if journalism changes, and it will, because it's always changed in the course of history, uh, whether it'll go in the direction of knowledge journalism or some other direction, I don't know. Uh, but it will change, but it will change gradually. Uh, and there will be leaders in the movement. There will be some news organizations that pick it up, get to be models for others. Uh, that happened uh, with the wire services. They first started to play it down the middle, and then newspapers also started to play it down the middle. Uh, so, you know, these, this kind of change is going to occur. Uh, but, you know, this is a, a huge institution, uh, this thing that we call the news media. Uh, we're talking about thousands of organizations. Uh, we're talking about uh, tens of thousands of journalists. Um, and, uh, you know, the way change takes place in that kind of structure is that it, it comes in, uh, it gets picked up, it starts to spread. But you're talking about years, not days, uh, in terms of how quickly that, that occurs. So, and the audience, of course, is not aware that, that things are, are changing and they're changing so much on the margins, uh, that it's hardly noticeable day to day, much less even year to year. Uh, but then over time, it does change. Um, and then audience expectations form around kind of that new model of news. And that's what you expect from news. And then it's a shock when you, when you don't see it. And, you know, it's one of the many points that you make is is now we're getting to the idea of, of journalism education, and there are, I mean, journalism schools and communication colleges abound across the country, and um, I, I have a background as well in working with high school journalists and and uh, working with their teachers, and you can see the education. I mean, they're training from age literally fourteen when they enter high school if they if they take it all the way through of, you know, truth equals balance, and he said, she said, in many cases. Um, that might be harder to address, but in terms of colleges and universities, how would uh, you prescribe or how would this book prescribe um, that educators go about maybe reevaluating uh, J-School programs and uh, maybe, maybe how, helping them evolve? Well, <clears throat> journalism programs to me are very interesting. And, um, and even thinking about the profession of journalism uh, strikes me as an interesting uh, topic. Um, what's different about journalists uh, than about almost any other professional group is that they don't have a knowledge base uh, as the foundation for their profession. Uh, so if you look at physicians, um, they're trained in medical science. Uh, Lawyers are trained in a body of law, uh, economists in economic theories. Um, journalists are trained to produce stories. Uh, they're trained in a craft. Uh, they need how to, how to gather information, uh, how to stylize it, how to disseminate it. Um, and um, that kind of training is, is invaluable for the journalist. It's, it, it's, you, you can't be a journalist if you don't know how to do stories. Uh, on the other hand, what it does is it makes the journalist vulnerable, uh, vulnerable to sources. Uh, you know, if you went into your doctor's office and you knew more about medicine than your doctor did, uh, you wouldn't go back. Uh, but journalists routinely face that problem on a daily basis. Uh, their sources, in most cases, know more about the subject that's on the table than they do. You know, if they're covering the Pentagon, uh, you know, the people in the Pentagon know more about defense policy than they do. If they're covering the State Department, the same thing about international affairs and diplomacy. Uh, that makes them vulnerable to spin and to manipulation. Uh, Joseph Pulitzer understood this uh, early in the in the 20th century, uh, and he gave the first endowment. He endowed the, uh, the School of Journalism at Columbia University. 
And what he said at the time was that he wanted to elevate journalism to an intellectual profession on the same level as medicine and law. And it never happened. Uh, and then along came the Hutchings Commission in 1947, the Commission on the Freedom of the Press, that looked at journalism training and said the same thing. Uh, this is craft training. Uh, this is not professional training. Uh, and I think the journalism programs have improved since then. But if you look at the curriculum of most journalism schools, it's still about the craft. Um, and what we tried to do in the Carnegie Knight Initiative was to try to figure out whether you can embed knowledge in that training in ways that strengthen journalism. And let me give you an example. of. Uh, and we had 11 journalism programs that were involved in the Carnegie Knight Initiative. Uh, and they all were given some money from the foundations, uh, and they were sort of given carte blanche. Uh, you know, try it your way. Experiment with different models. We were, we were really trying to look at a lot of different approaches, alternatives uh, within the period of time that we were doing it, rather than sort of giving them a particular model and, and ask them to, to, to put it into place. So they did a lot of experimentation. At one of the universities, for example, in one semester, uh, they had a, a course on, on national security reporting. Uh, and instead of one instructor being in the room, there were two. Uh, there was a journalism instructor and then a national a professor from the political science department, the national security specialist. And all of the assignments that the students did were national security reporting assignments. Uh, but in every case, uh, before they did the assignment, uh, they were instructed in issues of national security. Uh, and what we found uh, in that particular course and in these other uh, efforts that were done by the other journalism schools over a period of six years as they experimented with this is that the reporting just was much better. Uh, and what we wanted to do, uh, but we didn't, couldn't do because this didn't cover all of the students in the programs, and it wasn't carried in every course for some of the students, uh, was essentially to get journalists to internalize this notion that knowledge is, is, is as essential to re good reporting as is the interview and the observation. And for years, journalism programs have taught their students to conduct interviews, and if something happens and you're nearby, to go out and observe. Interviewing and observation as the primary tools of, of journalism. And you can't do good journalism without interviewing and observation. But our argument, our contention, our premise was that you also cannot do good journalism if you don't know the subject that you're reporting on. And what we found is that it does, in fact, deepen the reporting. Uh, it also opens journalists' eyes to other possibilities. Uh, when they're looking at situations, uh, they see it more broadly, they see it more in richer terms, and they communicate much of that to the audience. So the question then becomes, okay, how do you essentially make this a model for journalism schools um, with all of the other things that you need to do uh, in journalism training, uh, especially with all of these new platforms coming along? And how do, you, how do you train students in the traditional media and the social media how do you teach them how to write stories? How do you do all of those things and also get them to understand how knowledge can, can deepen their journalism? And what we found, and that, but it's challenging, what we found is that when you meld those things, when you use work them together, uh, that's when you really see the journalism starting to soar. That's when you see the great reporting. Uh, there's a t been a tendency in journalism schools to sort of, okay, say, say to their students, okay, 
you're a journalism major. What we'd like you to be is also a second major. Go off and do political science and go off and do economics or go off and do some other particular subject. That'll make you a better reporter. But what happens in those instances is that the students don't really bridge the two disciplines. They don't bring them together. And the idea of knowledge-based journalism training is not that you slight the journalism aspect of it, but that you you embed that training uh, uh, in assignments and the like that force also knowledge into the equation so that knowledge becomes like interviewing and observation, almost second nature as you think about trying to get to a story. Um, I think it can be done. Uh, we had great success uh, at those universities with the program. Uh, but it's disruptive. Uh, that's not the way they're used to doing things, uh, and it would require some uh, rebalancing uh, of their courses, some rebalancing of their faculty. When you talk about those kinds of things, uh, you're talking about a lot of resistance, and there would be a lot of resistance. Um, so you can't look at this as something that's going to happen overnight. Uh, and uh, what you hope can happen is that a few places will pick up on this idea uh, sort of develop the model uh, and then essentially show that, in fact, it does work and it works better than the old way of doing things. Uh, now, to some degree, that's what the Columbia Journalism School is doing now. They've uh, created a new master's program to go along with their traditional one-year master's program. And the one-year master's program is strictly a craft-based uh, program. It's all about news writing and news production and how, how to tell stories and the like. Their two-year program, uh, in the second year, you work on a discipline. Uh, you may work on economics or you may work on international relations. But what's different about the Columbia program is that those students do not go off to the economics department for a year or do not go off to the international relations program for a year. Faculty for those programs come to the journalism school, sit with the journalism faculty and team teach courses uh, that force journalists basically to learn how to use knowledge in their reporting. And then that becomes a general skill. Uh, the idea that you can teach journalists to, to make them subject matter experts in all that they do, uh, you're just not going to be able to do it because there's still going to be a lot of general assignment reporters. But what you want to be able to teach them uh, is to give them a knowledge of how to use knowledge. Too often now, uh, a journalist will plug some knowledge into a story. They'll do a story in the traditional way. They'll go on the web. Oh, that's a nice little nugget. Let me plug that in. That, that adds some interest to my story. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about really knowing how to use knowledge so that it helps you think about a reporting situation. And, uh, you know, let me give you a couple of examples uh, in, in recent examples. Um, and I'll take them from overseas because, uh, you know, this is often where American journalists begin to stumble. Uh, you know, you think about the, uh, the Arab Spring uh, and the kind of reporting that came out of uh, the Arab countries during the Arab Spring. You'd think uh, from the tone of much of that reporting that American democracy was about to flower and bloom uh, in many of those desert lands. And uh, we now know that's not even close to what was happening there uh, for sure. There are some Arabs uh, who want uh, Western-style democracy. Uh, there are others who want democracy but define it very differently. And then there are others who want a for new form of government, but it's not a democratic form of government by any definition. Uh, that kind of subtlety, that, that kind of 
that was just missing from that reporting. And I think that's why so many people were surprised that uh, the Arab Spring wasn't quite the spring uh, <laughs> that uh, people had thought about. And then another example, uh, and it's from a colleague of mine here uh, at the at the Shorenstein Center who's been looking at uh, – the, the kind of the euro crisis and looks at the American press coverage and, and, and the way much of that coverage has been portrayed. It's the frugal Germans against the spend, you know, versus the spendthrift Greeks as if somehow that's the story of the euro crisis. You know, and the problem of the euro crisis is, is, is a structural one. It's a, it's a problem of, uh, it's a banking problem, uh, because of the banking institutions and the difficulty in, in the eurozone of getting banking discipline and coordinated action and all of that. Things that in this country we take for granted because of the Fed and the Treasury Department. But again, uh, you're not getting that kind of reporting uh, from American journalists uh, about the euro crisis. Instead, you're getting, you know, it's either Germany versus Greece or it's uh, Merkel having a different uh, notion about the direction that uh, Europe ought to go from the Sarkozy or Hollande. Uh, you know, that's journalism Light. Uh, that does not inform a public. Uh, that fills a page uh, that takes up time in a newscast, uh, but that's a very misleading portrayal of what's going on. And it's knowledge uh, that allows you to do these things more accurately. You're not going to be able to get it by observing. You're not going to be able to get it through a couple of interviews. You've got to understand the underlying processes that are at work. So I do think you know, there's a place, a larger place in journalism uh, for knowledge. It's not a cure-all. Uh, this is still a very difficult thing that journalists do. You know, at the drop of a hat, pick up a new subject and and try to get something cranked out within you know six hours, if they're lucky, 24 hours. Uh, you know, this is not this is not easy going, but uh, you know, it can be done better. And and I think through the Carnegie Night Initiative, we learned some lessons about how, in fact, to do it better. Yeah, you mentioned resistance. Was resistance coming from members within the J school, or was it coming from people from the outside departments, maybe not wanting to work with within the J school? Where was that resistance coming from? Well, actually, one of the—I don't know if it was surprising, but one of the really gratifying aspects of the Carnegie United Initiative was the, the interest and the willingness of faculty outside journalism programs to team with journalism faculty to do these courses. There was a lot of interest uh, on the part of other faculty. I think the resistance is going to come within journalism programs, uh, in part because, you know, any any institution is kind of inherently conservative when it comes to change. Uh, you know, if we go back 50 years or so ago, uh, you look at business schools, how were they... What was an MBA in business 50 years ago? Well, an MBA in business 50 years ago was with a faculty that was largely made up of people who had been in firms uh, and had learned some lessons uh, because of their time in, 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 in those corporations and came into these business schools and basically... It was more than war stories. They, they, they did try to, in a more systematic way, talk about the lessons they had learned to their students. Um, well, about 50 years ago, journal, uh, business programs decided that, that that wasn't quite good enough, uh, that, that there is a place for knowledge in, in, in business training. And that's when business programs started to absorb economics into their programs, when they started to absorb management theory and organizational theory into their programs uh, and, and negotiation theory and, and aspects that 
that really come out of a knowledge base as opposed to a practice base. That was not easy. Uh, and it took time to kind of meld those different pieces uh, to kind of rebalance the faculties. Uh, but if you ask someone in a business school today, would they go back uh, to the old model of 50 years ago? They'd laugh at you, um, you know, and say, you know, that's not where business is today. And, you know, if you don't know these certain things uh, as a manager, as a business exec, uh, you're going to be left behind uh, by your peers who do, in fact, have that that deeper knowledge base uh, as well as the, the base in practice. Um, so I think that's that's for journalism schools. That's that's the challenge they face. Uh, and um, and there is a divide in journalism schools between the, the communication scholars and the journalist practitioners that came on faculty who, who came out of careers in journalism. You know, they do have different ways of looking at these puzzles and problems. Uh, but I think, you know, it, once they start to work together and once they see some of the benefits of combining uh, the advantages of really good practice with the advantages of really good scholarship, uh, I think in the long run, they're going to find that not only do they work together together better, but they're, they're training their students uh, in a better way. And their students, once they're out in the, in the marketplace, are more effective. Uh, but again, that's a hope. Um, and the book lays out that argument as to, as to why journalism programs ought to go in that direction. Uh, and, you know, it's, it, it, it's difficult. Let me give you one final example about the difficulties. Uh, I don't think in most areas of reporting today that you can be a good journalist if you don't know the numbers, if you don't have statistical literacy. Now, I'm not talking about having to be a statistician, uh, not at that level. But if you can't kind of look at numbers, look at polls, uh, look at government reports that contain numbers, if you can't interpret them properly, then you can't communicate them adequately to an audience and reliably and validly. Uh, And yet many journalists cannot do that. And journalism programs do not require statistical literacy from their programs. Some do, but many do not. Uh, And Jack Fuller, who uh, won the Pulitzer Prize, longtime editor and publisher uh, at the Chicago Tribune, uh, said he is aghast at uh, how little most journalists know uh, about numbers and uh, how critical numbers are to reporting. And that goes to the complexity of today's world. I mean, one way we try to cut through that complexity is, is with data. Uh, but but if, if, if data is a foreign language to you, how do you interpret uh, that material and communicate it effectively and properly uh, to an audience? You can't. Uh, and to me, that's, you know, that's a kind of a concise example of why, uh, why journalists need to know more. They know a lot. I'm not trying to make that argument, but they need to know a lot more. Sure. Just, just a couple more questions. One, can you, can you point to maybe an example or two um, of working journalists or maybe journalism organizations that are employing knowledge-based journalism? Will you, will you watch them or you read them and you think, yes, this person or this, this group, they get it? Well, <clears throat> you know, David Sanger... Uh, from the New York Times, sure. uh, I think his his work uh, in the area of national security is 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 just first rate. Um, I think those journalists are out there. Uh, 
Matthew Nisbet at, uh, at American University calls them knowledge journalists, and I think that's an apt description. Uh, there just aren't enough of them. Uh, you know, and then there are some news organizations like the Times uh, that has the luxury of a large staff. They've got about 1,300. I don't know the exact number, so that's an approximation. About 1,300 journalists. You know, they have the luxury with the, with with a staff that size to be able to give their people time uh, to work on stories, time to kind of deepen their understanding of the story before they have to write the story. Uh, you know, the Times, it, it, it's hard to find another newspaper in the United States, perhaps even the world, uh, that, uh, you know, has the quality of coverage that the Times has. Uh, interestingly, the Times... Uh, in its history, has tended not to hire uh, graduates of, of journalism schools. Uh, the Times model, and it's not really a model, it's just kind of an informal rule of thumb, was always that, uh, you know, we want to hire people who really know something, who have, who have subject matter expertise. Uh, if they come in and they know economics, or if they come in and they know political science, or if they come in and they, they know finance, uh, you know, we can teach them to write news stories in six, eight weeks. Uh, uh, what we can teach them uh, is an understanding of the, of the subjects that they're covering. So the Times has always had that bias uh, in that direction. Um, and I think they're a pretty good model uh, or a pretty good example of what happens when you combine the practice and there's a knowledge base behind it. Uh, the reporting just is better. Uh, and, you know, there are other examples. I could kind of go through a list of uh, a list of them. Uh, but, you know, increasingly some of the news in the media system, you know, some news outlets are, are moving in a very different kind of direction. You know, you almost despair sometimes for, for cable news. Uh, it's, it seems to be sometimes all about conflict, get the conflict up, get the, get the opposing heads speaking and uh, let them go at each other. Uh, no real attempt essentially to cut through the, cut through the noise and uh, cut through the fabrications to the truth. Uh, but <clears throat> so, you know, I think in this, kind of brave new world of, of journalism where it comes in a lot of different forms, uh, you know, to expect knowledge-based journalism to penetrate deeply into cable, at least cable as we know. And I think that's a, uh, I think you can hold your breath for a long time on that one before that one. <laughs> but, uh, but certainly there are news organizations that take seriously their responsibility to inform the public. Um, those are the ones that uh, I'm trying to reach and we're trying to reach through the Carnegie Knight initiative uh, to get them to, to really think what, you know, what are the tools you'll need uh, to do good reporting in 21st century America? And uh, if you think about that, and seriously think about it, uh, you know, knowledge has to be up there with the traditional tools. So the book is out and it's done and it's important and it's useful. What is next on your plate? Well, I hope it's important I, I, and I hope it's useful. I, you know, for sure it's out there. So that's that's the good thing. Um, I've become increasingly concerned and intrigued by um, the level of party polarization uh, in this country. Um, you know, we've been there before, so this isn't exactly new Uh and uh, but but party polarization, you know, has I think has different dimensions to it. You know, you don't get polarization out of nothing. So, you know, we've got some real divides in this country that are playing themselves out. Uh, and we've got people uh, on both sides of those divides that are earnest and honest uh, 
and you know truly believe uh, that that the way they think is the way the country should go. Those things are hard uh, to resolve and uh, and do create conflict of uh, that we need to work our way through uh, in order to get out the other side. Uh, but then there's kind of a layer on top of that. Uh, you know, sort of conflict for conflict's sake or, or things that kind of uh, exacerbate the problem. Um, and my sense is that the media uh, are somewhere in that mix, uh, particularly cable. Uh, and I would include certainly the talk show hosts in this. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think they're the root of uh, partisan polarization, but uh, some of them are accelerants uh, in this uh, tendency for us to be increasingly divided. Uh, I don't think we understand fully what that process is like and and the contribution that uh, media are making to it uh, or the contribution that media could make to uh, reducing the level of polarization. Uh, Again, you can't reduce it completely because there are some real differences out there that are playing themselves out. I think we're, as we've done before in our history, uh, you know, America's going to change and uh, people have different ideas about uh, what direction it ought to be taking. Uh, but, you know, there are a lot of uh, people in the media uh, who gain a lot, uh, profit personally uh, in terms of reputation. Uh, pocketbook. Uh, you know, Glenn Beck uh, draws about, you know, pulls in about $40 million a year with his enterprises. Uh, and uh, my sense is that uh, a lot of what's going on in the media uh, is making the problem worse, uh, not making it better. And uh, I, I'm sort of in the early stages of thinking about what a book-length project uh, on that particular topic uh, would look like, where it would go what kind of pieces it would pick up. Uh, and then you kind of ask yourself, okay, if you do that and it's purely descriptive and uh, it doesn't lead to any kind of prescriptions about kind of how we can help fix the problem, because I do think uh, excessive party polarization is a problem. If it doesn't have that element to it, then I probably wouldn't carry it uh, forward. But uh, kind of that's the one that I'm thinking about at the moment. Well, Thomas Patterson's current book is Informing the News, The Need for Knowledge-Based Journalism. Thomas, thanks for the conversation. Dave, thank you very much. been a pleasure. You've been listening to New Books in Journalism, part of the New Books Network. You can find Informing the News, written by Thomas Patterson at Amazon and other retailers. Thanks for listening.